Well, please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Our text this morning will be 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. This is the last sermon in a short series called Suffering in 2 Corinthians, Treasure in Jars of Clay. And this morning we'll see how fragile Paul, the apostle who wrote this letter, was a demonstration in his fragility of the power of God and how those two relate. How through his frailty, the treasure of the gospel was displayed and how through our frailty, the treasure of the gospel can be displayed. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, Paul writes, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Well, in his article, Why I'm Ending My Boycott of German Cars, Jewish writer for The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, told the story of his visit to the floor of an empty magma chamber of a dormant, though not extinct, Icelandic volcano. He writes, On the three-mile walk to the volcano, through a desolate and, and lovely lava field, I asked the guide to explain the volcano elevator in detail. <laughs> she said the process is simple. We strap you into a harness and then you walk across a plank over the mouth of the volcano to the window washer's basket. You climb down into the basket, it holds six people, and then the basket motorman lowers you 400 feet to the floor of the volcano. Does it ever break? I asked. No, she said. It's a German engine, very reliable. A German engine! They weren't messing around with this volcano, he writes. I was about to entrust the lives of my children to a window washer's basket dangling from a crane over the mouth of a volcano, and I was beyond pleased to learn that this machine was German. Well, it matters who you entrust your life to in a situation like this. Likewise, on the operating table, you want somebody with demonstrated integrity, not a crazy you want someone with demonstrated good intentions. They make a living doing this, but understand that medicine serves people and not the other way around. You want someone with demonstrated ability. They've got the credentials. 
they can actually perform the surgery and bring you out on the other side alive. And you want someone with demonstrated durability or a record. They aren't going to change on you. They are time-tested. They hold up. They're not going to throw in the towel on their career in the middle of your operation. How much more your soul? How much more your soul? Well, the Apostle Paul came to Corinth and planted a church. He was like a father to them. But this church doesn't trust him anymore. They prefer some new leaders, leaders with more bling than Paul had. The situation could be compared to an adolescent who looks down on his parents and disregards what they say because rock stars and celebrities are his new heroes. They don't care about you, says mom and dad. We do, and we're your parents. And there's something sad and confusing and even moronic about having to say that. And of course, some of us in this room have heard those words before ourselves. Paul calls these new leaders super apostles with a veneer of sarcasm that is not exactly hidden. They make claims for themselves, and while he's away, they also make claims for the apostle Paul who planted this church. The new leaders don't like the old leader. So Paul writes in this letter to make some claims of his own. And we've heard a number of these over the last few weeks, but it'd be helpful to review. He makes claims concerning his integrity and theirs. 2 Corinthians 2, where we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Or in chapter 11, they are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He makes claims about their intentions in his. Chapter 11, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. In chapter 2, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, to let you know about the abundance of love that I have for you. And he makes claims about his gospel and about their gospel. In chapter 10, we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. And in chapter 11, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I have unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. And he makes claims about his record and theirs. Do we need, as some do, he writes, letters of recommendation to you? They were probably saying Paul needed a letter of recommendation. Or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul's track record is clear. It is evidenced in their own conversion and the existence of this very church that is rejecting him or considering doing so. These super apostles have claims, and Paul has claims of his own. Who will they trust? Who will they trust? Eternity is in the balance here, actually. For the things they are questioning about Paul are the things about Paul that are actually like Jesus himself. If they're too good for Jesus' apostle, are they not too good for Jesus? That's the question at hand. And so Paul will say to them at the very end of the book, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He doesn't run to that 
imperative, that command, but he does say so at the end of the letter. If at the end of the letter you're not with me, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. But the kind of foolishness that the Corinthians, kind of foolishness that the Corinthians were falling for and demonstrating needed more than just direct talk, although Paul has given them plenty of direct talk. Sometimes it's appropriate to answer a fool by pointing out their folly. Sometimes it's appropriate to answer a fool according to their folly, to show them, as it were, the nature of their error. And so Paul does this. And how does he do that? How does Paul answer these fools, these foolish Corinthians, and through this letter, the foolish super apostles, how does he answer them according to their folly? Well, he boasts. He boasts. Awkwardly, reluctantly, and much to his bewilderment and frustration, Paul boasts. He plays their game. The Corinthian church has put Paul in a position where he is actually willing to boast about himself in order to persuade them that he's the real deal. But of course, he should not have to do so, and he clearly does not want to do so. And when I say it's to persuade them, it's not for his sake or name, but for their good that they be persuaded that Paul is the real deal. He says in chapter 13, your restoration is what we pray for. And so in all of this sarcasm and all of the punch and bite that his letter has at times throughout, throughout the letter. We remember Paul's prayer for restoration of them to himself, Christ's apostle, and to Christ. In doing so, he speaks about being under daily pressure and anxiety for all the churches. Paul's the real deal. And this boasting is a calculated move that comes at the cost of feeling like an idiot and almost wondering if he's sinning because the Lord hates boasting, but it just may save these people and the way Paul does it works. It's like the girl that decides not to marry a tender, loving, sacrificial fiance after all because she wants a more lavish life and so he's forced to admit he has an inheritance coming. He's mad he had to do it, but he loves her, even in her immaturity. Maybe the dad who's a former rock star in hiding is forced to say to his two cool teen son, son, Elvis is not dead. He is standing in front of you. <laughs> now listen to me, okay? I am a rock star. Though we will agree with him today, we should be careful not to identify too much with Paul, though, for our temptations and sins are not a whole lot unlike the temptations and sins of this church. An unseriousness about God and eternity plagued the Corinthian church and so made them vulnerable to false apostles. And an unseriousness about God and eternity is characteristic of our own day and place as well and so has made the contemporary church vulnerable to false teachers and false gospels. And I think you're in a really good place at Desert Springs Church. But the turnover right here is huge. And not because you all leave, but because you move away. And you're going to have to find a new church. And you're going to be looking for a new pastor and new leaders at some point. What will guide you? What will guide you? Well, if the right things didn't bring you here at first, we hope that the right things will drive you to the right place if the Lord were to move you on for that reason. Paul writes for the restoration of the Corinthian church to spiritual sanity and safety. And it's a word and a warning to all of us. We listen like a younger child listens to an older child getting in trouble preventing us from committing the same error. May we be clear of this fault. So as Paul goes on boasting this morning, we'll learn about Paul's privilege, we'll learn about Paul's pain, and we'll learn about Paul's purpose. His privilege, his pain, and his purpose. We get here a profile 
of a famous pastor. First, Paul boasts in his privilege. He boasts in his privilege. Paul's privilege, a visit to heaven. Paul's privilege, a visit to heaven. Verses 1 through 6. Paul writes in verse 1, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Whoa, Paul. Visions and revelations. What kind of visions and revelations of the Lord? Tell us more. Verse 2. I know a man who in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether by the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul, you know a man? You've got to hook us up, Paul. You've got to hook us up. Our church would love this guy. But wait, Paul, you're speaking in the third person, but are, you, but are you really talking about yourself? Because if you're talking about self, then please accept our apologies, but you should have told us sooner, you are the man. You are awesome, Paul. Great. This is great stuff. You can definitely come and speak at our church. Say whatever you want, Paul. But Paul, why didn't you tell us about this? Verse 5. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. These visions and revelations are mine. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Oh. And really, after 11 chapters, and now this, the receptive first century readers of Paul's words here would have been hanging their heads already. Perhaps not all of them, but the receptive ones would have been hanging their heads, for Paul has been speaking this way for a little while. Let's talk about the meet, this meeting with God. What do we know about it? What do we know about this trip to the third heaven? We know everything that we just read about it. That's how much we know about it. Paul purposefully didn't tell us more. Do you get that? This vision to heaven took place 14 years ago. We'll drag out the description. 14 years ago. We don't have a lot of, uh, on Paul, just historically and from the scriptures, on this time in his life, but God had visited him uh, or brought him to heaven in some type of experience. To strengthen him, this visit to heaven was otherworldly. He doesn't know if it was in his body or not. So we don't. On this visit to heaven, he heard things that are inexpressible. And it may well be that he's not allowed to tell, but it's also likely the case that he couldn't if he wanted to. It's like any movie that involves time travel. There's always that scenario where Someone might describe something from the future to someone from the past, but it's just impossible. Even something like a computer with its buttons and its screen requires layers and layers and layers of assumed reality that I don't even get, but I take for granted. To explain them would be impossible. You can only experience them. So it would have been with Paul's vision, no doubt. What this visit to heaven was clearly not was a story he could tell others as a way of proving that he was God's man. That's why he hasn't brought it up. 14 years. I had a friend one time say, you can't argue with experience. This is a guy committed to the Bible. You can't argue with experience. I read a book about a kid who went to heaven. Well, yes, you can argue with experience in books written by kids who went to heaven. 
And we should not miss that when Lazarus came back from four days of being dead, Scripture tells us that he ate with his family, but it doesn't tell us anything about what he shared, if he shared anything, or what that experience was like. And Paul right here tells us he went to heaven, and he doesn't say anything about what it was like. In fact, he says he's not allowed to say what it was like, and he wouldn't try if he could. That's what I'm taking from this. This visit was no doubt a means to Paul's great strength and endurance as apostle, but, but these visions and revelations presented Paul with a hazard. No sinner can handle this much privilege. This kind of an experience is a real hazard for anyone who's a sinner still, and Paul is. And so because of Paul's visit to heaven, God gave Paul a special visitor to protect him, something else for which Paul would boast, actually, which brings us to the second point, Paul's pain, a thorn in the flesh, Paul's pain, a thorn in the flesh. Verses 7 through 9, Paul continues, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God invited Paul to heaven, but then when, then when Paul goes home, he sends him home with a thorn that he can't get out. What a deal. It's like rain on your wedding day, it figures. Recognize that? So you go to heaven and you come back with a thorn. Well, what's curious is that a very reason for the super apostles to discredit Paul was something the Lord gave to him because Paul was so privileged that no human could hold back their pride and return back to a normal life after it. Oh, how ashamed the super apostles would be in hearing this and the church in hearing the, this. How subtly but clearly Paul has made, it, made his story plain. Well, what was this thorn in the flesh? What was this thorn in the flesh? What do we know about it? Well, again, we know all about the thorn in the flesh that we have just read. In God's wisdom, he's only told us so much. But then you think about it, and it's actually good news since it means that we can undistractingly relate our own pain to Paul's. And there's application for Paul's comfort for our comfort. In fact, that's a theme in the Bible, that as God comforts us in our afflictions, so we comfort others. And so as Paul relates how he is comforted by God here, He's comforting us so that we can comfort others with these words. What do we know about the thorn? We'll drag this description out too. Well, it was a real pain. The thorn was given me in the flesh, he says. Oh, this could refer to his physical body or just his fleshly bodily experience. It could be some type of uh, person. A thorn in the flesh. They're a real thorn. It could have been the church, I suppose. God gave me you guys. Some kind of emotional turmoil. It could very well, I, prob I think it's probably in a medical condition. We just, we don't, we have no idea. It was a real pain. It was a real pain. But we do know that Paul suffered under some kind of chronic, constant, unrelenting, and undistracting pain. Can you relate with that? Chronic, constant, distracting, real pain. Paul knew that in his victorious Christian life. This thorn was a satanic pain, verse 7, a messenger of Satan to harass me, he calls it. A messenger of Satan to harass me. 
Sometimes Satan cruelty comes to us in the form of deception when you see a person or when your own life is destroyed by something like drugs or whose marriage was destroyed by anger or mind and ability to relate with the opposite sex by pornography. That's Satan's deception angle at work. We think we want something and it ruins us and then we're just sure we want more of it and it ruins us even more. Second Corinthians eleven thirteen. for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. We should be careful, but not afraid to call a spade a spade when there is a wolf in sheep's clothing. When somebody who has a false gospel claims to speak for God and for the Bible and for Jesus, sometimes we should sound cranky and a little irritated with a particular TV preacher or famous author. And that's okay. It's mirroring Paul. But all from concern and a love for the truth and the gospel that saves and the eternity that's at stake and the souls in the mix. No wonder Corinth was amuck with bitterness and fighting and sexual immorality and anger. Their leaders had a false gospel. Next time you're tempted to nurse an angry thought at a spouse instead of forgive, remember Satan's the father of lies and you're not his son if you're a Christian. Next time you're tempted to clink a link, remember Satan's the father of lies and you're not his son if you're a Christian. Sometimes Satan's cruelty comes to us in the form of deception, and we should be ready for that. But sometimes, as is the case here, it comes in a frontal assault of absolutely painful, forward pain. And Paul describes his ailment as a harassment of Satan. It's a case of spiritual harassment, satanic harassment, the worst kind. And it doesn't go away when you leave work or the wrong part of town. And so Paul, as you might expect, Paul doesn't keep silent. This thorn was real, it was satanic, and of course, it was a part of God's divine, it was divine pain, it was a divine pain. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. He goes to the Lord He doesn't holler at Satan like God has nothing. He goes right to the Lord about this. Three times pleading with the Lord as Jesus himself pleaded with the Lord to have his cup removed from him. Paul knew it was from Satan, but he also knew it was from God's hand and God stood behind Satan. Remember the story of Job. These series that we've been through over the last months complement one another and they're from the same spirit. Satan attacked Job personally. Satan sought Job's harm. Satan killed Job's family. It was all evil all the way down and Job was right to call it evil. And yet, it's from the Lord. And as much as the Lord could stop any of that and allows it for his purposes. Job cried out to God. This is the biblical vision of God in relationship to evil. Remember Joseph's classic line in speaking with his brothers in Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about Bring it about that many people should be kept alive as are alive today. This pain was rightly as unwelcome as Satan is unwelcome. And yet this pain was productive because it was a divine pain. This thorn was productive. It's on purpose. Paul says in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, this thorn, a messenger of Satan, was given to me. It's interesting. You would think that going to heaven would make you more humble, right? I think of Isaiah on his face before the Lord. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips, humiliated, humbled, flattened. But it's just a reminder of how sneaky and tricky sin is that when you leave the presence of God in heaven and return to your normal life, that in a matter of time, you'll start to look down on people because of how awesome you are and how awesome your relationship with God is. And of course, God can't afford any of this in Paul and he won't allow it. And this is what the, the, this is what the Corinthians are in danger of. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion of Christ. God is committed to a sincere and pure devotion of Christ for Paul. And that is not compatible with believing you're awesome. It's not compatible with conceit. It's not compatible with pride. The idea that power is better than weakness is satanic since it exalts human strength. And that idea has nothing to do with Christianity. So brothers and sisters, remember, it was Christ who washed the feet of his disciples before he died for his disciples. It was Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it was Christ who was stripped, whipped, and hung out to die, publicly humiliated. He was despised. He was unattractive. And all for love. There's no place for pride. And so for Paul, this thorn was a gracious pain. It was a gracious pain. It was a means by which Paul experienced more of God's grace. We don't get God speaking to us directly in pain, in our pain concerning his purpose, but we can listen into God speaking to Paul and we can hear it that it's for us as well in this case, as it's scripture is for us. My grace is sufficient for you, verse 9. My power is made perfect in weakness. You see, the grace that saves us is the grace that comforts us. It's the grace that meets us in our suffering. It's the grace that is sufficient for our suffering in every way. So do you believe that? Do you believe that there is no trial in the Christian life that God allows or sends for which he does not also send enough grace? It's true. There is no trial and there is no difficulty in the Christian life for which God does not also have an abundance of grace and send grace Four, God will take us to the edge if he wants in order to show us the vastness of the sea that is his grace. There's an awesome and there's a horrible hobby called urban climbing. Have you heard of urban climbing? If you trolled around the internet at all, you've probably come across a link to 84 pictures, to illegal, illegal, 84 illegal photos that people took risking their lives for us to see. Photos of the tops of the world's largest towers, sometimes from cranes. So they get this giant Shanghai Tower in China. And at the very top, there's a crane going up. And the guy climbs all the way up there and hangs off and takes a picture of his feet dangling. Oh, gosh. And there he is on the edge of the world, right? And he can see something that no one can see from the ground. And so God has brought Paul to the edge. Paul's beside himself with pain. Three times he's pleading with the Lord. 
And yet Paul knows that God's grace is sufficient for him. And there's an experience of God's grace and pain that you can't know without it. And we become like a picture to show everybody of what God has done. In the same way we see these pictures from these high towers. Don't try it. Well, God took Paul to the edge to show him something he couldn't see otherwise. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. There's a principle of this world. The strong are better than the weak. The church has at times swallowed this pill. Bigger is better. Slick is better. What do you say to people when you talk about your church? Do you only mention the kinds of things that would appeal to them? Is that why you like your church? Is because maybe it's cool in some fashion. Young preacher, cool youth pastor, talented song leader. These aren't wrong to mention. They're not wrong to appreciate. They're not wrong to praise God for. Except the cool youth pastor, Nathan. The, uh, the Corinthians, the Corinthians wanted signs and wonders without the suffering and the weakness. That's the point. It's not a sermon against eloquence or being cool. It's a sermon against abhorring and rejecting weakness. Maybe you've seen billboards that reflect this. You won't be bored. It's a church like you've never seen it. Not your grandma's church. Any desire to connect with the world and invite them is a right and a good desire, but not any method is right. Not any method is right. The Corinthians are running a program in their head, but it's a corrupted program. This passage is not teaching that eloquent speech is a sign of infidelity to the gospel or that being loved by many is a sign of infidelity to the gospel. God's word does its work and can be widely appreciated. So someone could become a famous preacher just by doing the right thing in his work. And this passage isn't teaching that suffering is necessary indicator of fidelity to the gospel. It's teaching that We've all got to be in with the apostles. And if we're going to be in with the apostles, with Christ, we've got to be in with the apostles. And the apostles are embarrassing. And some of the things they say are embarrassing. And their experiences were embarrassing. As Christ's were. And as they call us to a life of. Which brings us to Paul's purpose. Paul's purpose, third point. To know and to show God's power. Paul's purpose. To know and to show God's power. Well, without the thorn, Paul... Even having been to heaven, even having the Lord Jesus appear to him and call him into conversion, was in great danger. But with the thorn, Paul is of great spiritual use. And this is worth it to Paul. He continues in verse 9 through 10. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak then I am strong the super apostles were super boasters but Paul too is a boaster he has accommodated them and shared for a moment about his trip to heaven but only enough for them to know that he exceeds any of these super apostles in stature according to their own criteria of greatness Paul boasted in his privilege but reluctantly but he boasts in his weakness gladly and enthusiastically. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. You may be familiar with this famous passage here. It's a familiar passage for good reason. It's crazy in a way. But don't forget that it's crazy. It's backwards. It's like a baseball player boasting about a broken arm. Or a basketball player boasting about how he can't jump. What weaknesses are we talking about here? He mentions some weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and 
calamities. But what makes these weaknesses not a discredit, but an indication of his apostleship, a testimony to his apostleship? Listen with me to chapter 11, verse 21 and following. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. You get that connection? Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better servant of Christ with far greater labors, imprisonments, beatings, and often near death. See, these imprisonments and beatings and near death and experiences are all part of Paul's discipleship and following Christ. And he continues to tick off his sufferings, 160 lashes, three beatings with rods, a stoning, three shipwrecks, eight types of danger from rivers, robbers, Jews, Gentiles, urban danger, wilderness danger, danger at sea, danger from false Christians. Then there's sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, freezing temperatures, and scorching heat. He's the real thing. Paul does not seek out this suffering and he does not command it to us, but where his faithfulness in Jesus has resulted in suffering, suffering where there is a cost for his discipleship, there is an evidence that he belongs to our suffering Savior. And that's his point. At the heart of our faith is a bloody, tortured God. You ever think about that? You follow a religion at whose center is a bloody, tortured God. That's who you follow. That's what you believe. And this, no surprise, is a pattern for those who would follow him. Not that we would all suffer for our sins or suffer in the same way, but that we would suffer Satan's hatred against God on our own way to, God, on our own way to glory as well. When we side with Christ, we are not safe in this world. Safety and glory comes later. And to suffer with Christ is always, when God brings it, always an honor. And it was for Paul. But it was not for the Corinthians, and it should have been. And that's why Paul doesn't just boast in his weakness, but he gladly boasts in his weakness. Here's another way to put it. Why does Paul gladly boast in his weakness? Three words in the Greek, five in English. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. That's what he says. He boasts about the things that are weak in himself for the sake of Christ. That means that Jesus Christ is more important to Paul than Paul is to Paul. Is he more important to you than you are to you? Christ is the difference here. This had two dimensions. Verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He boasts in his weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon him. Rest upon me. The word here means set up his tent. The power of Christ so that Christ may set up his tent upon me. Tabernacled upon me. Sound like something from the Old Testament? Something of the experience of the presence of God and suffering when he sustains you that you can't know otherwise. Paul boasts in his weakness because he wants to know God's power. Open any book Paul writes and you'll pick this kind of stuff up. When he's made weak, there's an opportunity for the experience of God's power, an occasion for the special experience of the kindness and the comfort of God. And many of you know what I'm talking about. I've heard this numerous times. 
felt this, but more I've heard this from other people in the experience of their crazy pain, that God has been good to me. And it's been sweet. Uh, I mean, I say that all the way through the trial. But as God does his work, we come to a point as we suffer, if we know the Lord, where we say, he sustained me. So when you're on hard times, open up your Bible. Go to God. Pray to him. You feel like your tank is empty? Probably is. You're probably hanging from a crane on the top of the Shanghai Tower. Open up the scripture and open your eyes. Read these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Read the Psalms. Remember and tell yourself that God's grace is sufficient for you. Remember that his power is made perfect in your weakness. That your life is about him and not you at the end of the day. Paul boasts in his weakness because he wants to know the power of God. He also wants to show the power of God. He wants to take a picture home. Brings his camera with him. His very conversion entailed suffering for the display of God's power. In Acts 9, God says, Go for he, ha- he is a chosen instrument, Paul is, of mine, to carry, out, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul knew what he was in for. Speaking of his ministry among the Corinthians, Paul restates his ministry in relationship to Christ. Speaking of Christ, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. Paul makes no apology for his weakness. That is being called into question as a disqualification of his apostleship by these new leaders. For it's in his weakness that he's truly strong. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That the Corinthians would seek out flashy leaders and reject a man like Paul makes perfect sense. Really, it makes perfect sense. It's Corinth. But that the Corinthian church would seek out flashy leaders and reject a man like Paul makes no sense if indeed their allegiance and faith is with the crucified Savior. That Paul isn't good enough for them calls into question whether Christ can possibly be good enough for them to save. And that's why Paul writes. He writes to implore them to trust and trust themselves without hesitation, compromise, or reservation to his real apostles And so to the real Christ, there is no allegiance to God without allegiance to his apostles. And for us, that means allegiance to the scriptures that they gave us and to this man, Paul. And by the way, you can't bracket Paul. Someone I was speaking with a few years ago, another believer, professing, I think he's a believer, goes, well, I mean, Paul was rogue, you know. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean Paul was rogue? Uh, I mean, like, you, start, you tear one page out of Paul and you throw the whole Bible away. Embrace the scriptures that they've given to us with all of the embarrassment that is entailed there. Weak men like Paul from prison, chained and rejected by their world, wrote to us and we follow them. How silly would it be for anyone to request their favorite actor for a surgeon because how cool would that be? 
I mean, come on. No smooth words, good looks, or lofty claims have anything to do with serious things. They can accompany them, but they have nothing ultimately to do with them. This is true for the passage into the heart of a volcano. It's true for passage through the operating room, and it's true for passage from this life into eternity. So are you a Christian? Have you aligned yourself with an embarrassing Savior? With his embarrassing cross? With his embarrassing scriptures written by his embarrassing people? With his embarrassing church? It'll cost you something to become a Christian. More over time. More depending on where in the world you live and when. But it'll save your life. You'll be safe in death. You'll come out of the volcano. Yes, Paul was and is what we might call a famous pastor. He planted numerous churches in the first century and wrote half of the New Testament. He had serious cred and he's a household name in every Christian home. But here's what he had to say about having to boast in the verse after our text this morning. I've been a fool. You forced me into it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, your very interesting word. We're grateful for this chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the apostle Paul boasts, does so with a veneer of sarcasm, so in a way to shame his readers. And all of this while praying for their restoration and it actually being a means to their restoration. We pray that we would not be fooled, that we would know what true strength is in our leaders, in our Savior, and that in our own life as suffering comes to us, we would not be fooled into thinking That something is wrong, but maybe everything is just right. Maybe you're making things just right in us and with us. On the way to making everything right one day. Prepare us for heaven through our suffering, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.